Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 16th of April. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. So, Emily, how is Washington? Washington, D.C. is fine, although it's another, you know, I don't want to start the podcast off with gloom and doom again, um, but it is kind of a sad day in the United States. We had um, another mass shooting last night, this time around Indianapolis. Um, uh, And, you know, as I wrote the last time that we had mass shootings, um, I don't see that this is getting better at any point. So now that I have expressed that cynicism, Jeremy, how are things in Berlin? Um, Berlin's fine. Um, uh, Listeners may be interested to know that we are expecting in the next few days as we record this, um, the confirmation of who the Christian Democrats and the Greens, so the two parties currently leading the polls here ahead of September's election and who could conceivably lead a government, uh, will both choose their uh, chancellor candidates and announce them in the next few days. So obviously the political world here is paying a lot of attention to that. Um, but in other news, it's also nice and sunny, which is a rare change from the recent <laughs> recent weather here. So um, what's your moment of the week been? What do you think has been most significant? Well, uh, we've it's a, a lot to choose from this week, but I'm going to go with the United States deciding to halt uh, distribution of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, so essentially what happened was that um, six out of the 6.8 million who have received a Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, got had very serious blood clots after. Uh, and I don't mean to downplay the severity of this, but it's it was it was literally it was less than one in a million. Um, and so what the you know sort of U.S. health official said was, well, we need to pause this. We need to figure out how to give clinicians the proper, you know, proper language, how to advise people um, on who are, who are about to take this vaccine. What do they look for after? But the concern, and I think it's a fair concern, is that once you have made this announcement, do you increase vaccine hesitancy around Johnson & Johnson, not just here in the U.S. where Johnson & Johnson's only like, five percent of it only accounts for like five percent of the vaccine that's been given out here but it's also going to it's supposed to go to europe to sort of um uh re-kickstart your vaccine drive and distribution and you know south africa also announced that they were going to halt johnson and johnson distribution so um one wonders and worries about the international effects that this halt may have yeah as i understand it the eu is expecting about 50 
million doses of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine in the in the second quarter, which given that it is this one dose vaccine is is 50 million people. So not insignificant on this side of the Atlantic either. Um, my moment of the week is a Latin American moment of the week. Um, on the 11th of April, uh, Peru held the first round of its um, presidential election, which saw the left winger Pedro Castillo um, come first, um, and he'll go up in a runoff against Keiko Fujimori, who's the the daughter of the the country's um, former strongman president. Um, and it's 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 notable, I think, firstly because both of these candidates are what you might call outside of the political mainstream, to the left and the right, respectively. Um, if Castillo wins, it will be interesting because um, there was obviously a lot of talk about a decade or so ago about the sort of, perhaps a bit over a decade ago now, about the pink tide in Latin America. So it's a tide of um, left-wing governments being elected, the likes of Evo Morales in, in Bolivia and so forth. Um, and Castillo is very much in that tradition. So I think that would be notable. And it's also notable because um, this is a big year for elections in Latin America. Generally, there's going to be seven big ones over the course of the year by 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 the autumn. Um, this summer, Mexico is going to the polls in its legislative election. Argentina's voting in October. Um, Chile's voting in a general election in November. Um, and so a very troubled continent and a continent that has suffered disproportionately from COVID and the economic fallouts of COVID is sort of revealing itself a bit through this wave of elections. And I think the Peruvian one is, is no exception. So that's something to keep looking out for. And so I'm very pleased to introduce our guest this week. And I think regular readers of the New Statesman will have read some of her work for us over the last year or so. She's um, really brought great insight to our coverage of uh, the Asia-Pacific region. It's Jessie Lau. She's a freelance writer and journalist based in the UK who covers China and the Asia-Pacific with a, with a feminist perspective. And she's written for us on um, Hong Kong particularly, but also Taiwan and broader regional issues. So we're very pleased to have her with us. Thank you for joining us, Jessie. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you on. So the first question is about the most recent piece you've written for us, which was um, uh, about two weeks ago on the latest crackdown on freedom in Hong Kong from Beijing. And you wrote about, um, I think it was on March the 30th, Chinese leaders ruled um, in favour of a plan to make sure that only, quote unquote, patriots could take up positions of power in Hong Kong. Um, and you talked a bit about also about the, the West's response to this. So I think for, for, for listeners who haven't been keeping closely up to date with what's happened in Hong Kong. I think people might remember this the national security law last year, which made life for the opposition very difficult. Could you just start off by giving us a sort of a general um, sense of, of what's what's happened there, what this later ruling, this, this latest ruling means for Hong Kong? And then we'll come on to the, the main argument of your of your piece. I guess what's happening in Hong Kong at the moment, it, it, it's such a fast-changing environment, like you said, and there have been, I think the, the pace of reforms um, being implemented by Beijing has been particularly dizzying in, in recent weeks and recent months. But the piece that I wrote um, for the New Statesman talks about, I think, one of the most important um, changes in, in government reforms in Hong Kong, which is this massive overhaul of the electoral system. So basically, uh, it's it's this massive plan that has a lot of changes um, to do with Hong Kong's electoral reform. But the most important changes is one that they, although expanded the number of um, legislative seats, the share of directly ele elected representatives in legislature has nearly halved. And they've also created a committee which 
um, has to vet and approve candidates who mm-hmm. can run from office. So basically, the the main reason why Beijing is pushing through this electoral reform is that it's very in, very worried about dissent in Hong Kong politically, and this will make it very difficult for opposition leaders to to run for office and run for positions of power. It's also one of the most significant government reforms in Hong Kong since 1997 handover. So it, it's it's really important, a really big step. Right. So tr- transformational, and so you 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 write in the piece that. Um, Obviously, there has been, have been sanctions placed on Hong Kong officials by the UK and the US. Um, but you argue that you argue that they may only have limited effectiveness. Could you could you talk us through that argument? There have been a lot of actions taken in response to ongoing crackdowns in Hong Kong, and there are a growing number of overseas activists, um, people um, who have fled Hong Kong and are in ex- exile now, doing activism overseas which are lobbying foreign governments in particular to place sanctions on Beijing and Hong Kong officials and also to re-evaluate trade relations with Beijing. And so I interviewed a couple of these activists for the story who kind of spoke about how they they view that sanctions will, you know, have in a long-term effect and influence Beijing's um, decisions. But on the other hand, I also talked to a couple of scholars. Um, You know, the the professor I cite in the piece, uh, Steve Zhang of the... Chinese uh, Institute in SOAS spoke also about how there's this view um, among many that sanctions really have practically no effect. And the reason for this is because, especially if you sanction Hong Kong officials, when the directives and orders come from Beijing government and Beijing officials, and particularly if they come from Xi Jinping or upper administration um, in in the Chinese Communist Party, it, it doesn't really the Hong Kong officials don't really have any power over this uh, over these decisions, and so in many ways, sanctions becomes this um, measure of geopolitical posturing by different countries to kind of showcase that they're you know doing something on the Hong Kong issue without there being any like practical ramifications. And there was a recent article I wanted to flag in um, on this topic um, by David Brophy, who is a senior lecturer in modern Chinese history in the University of Sydney. And he wrote this really great piece in The Guardian, who, I mean, he kind of talks about this issue of sanctions um, with reference to the Xinjiang sanctions recently um, against China. And he talks about how sanctions are only effective if the sanctioned believe that changes in their behavior will lead to an improvement in geopolitical relations. And he points out that at this moment, with the growing geopolitical tension between China and other Western countries, it seems unlikely that this will be, you know, that that change in behavior will really uh, affect um, geopolitical relations between these countries. And so in many ways, it's just, you know, for many politicians um, in recent years, the Hong Kong issue has also become this sort of cheap talk issue where they can, you know, posture and say that they're doing something without actually, mm. you know, having any practical, tangible effect. In in passing, there's an interesting parallel, it seems to me, with with Russia and Ukraine, where um, similarly sanctions were the first thing out of the Western diplomatic toolbox. And a number of Russian officials and senior figures have been have been sanctioned. And yet here we are with Russia putting some allegedly 100,000 soldiers on the border of Ukraine at the moment. So there's also a broader conversation to be had here about about what sort of sanctions work and in what sort of circumstances sanctions work. Well, and listening to Jesse, um, sanctions were, the Russia sanctions in particular were what I thought of, but not actually, not Russia, not sanctions on Russia over Ukraine, but sanctions on everything else that Russia's done, right? So you have, Mm -hmm. if you look at the sanctions that the US, and obviously this isn't 
a podcast on Russia, so I don't want to talk too much too much about this. But I do want to note that like we have sanctions on Russia over um, you know the poisoning of people outside of Russia. We have sanctions on Russia for the poisoning of people inside of Russia. We have sanctions on oligarchs who are ostensibly close to Putin, which are meant to separate uh, the oligarchs from Putin, but have in fact driven them closer to him. We have sanctions on Russia. I mean, like you name it, we have sanctioned Russia for it, and it's not changing their behavior. So at a certain point, the the question uh, one hopes governments would ask is. Like, what are these meant to do? Is it meant to protect our own financial institutions? Is it meant to do something? Is it meant to just make ourselves feel better? Like, what is the point of this and why? But we we keep doing it, right? We just sanction, we put more sanctions on Russia this past week. Um, I guess all this is to say, Jesse, do you think that that the West, you know, the the quote unquote West understands this, that this is not like, okay, we're, we're trying this. It's not working. Let's try something else? Or do you think that um, they will continue to put that, that they will continue to put sanctions on various officials over Hong Kong? I think Hong Kong has become in many ways a political gridlock situation. And a lot of experts that I, I spoke to, you know, have, have mentioned to me that rather than sanctions, for example, sanctuary schemes, like the British National Overseas Passport Visa Scheme that the UK mm-hmm. government has launched to allow um, Hong Kongers a pathway to citizenship. And, you know, there have been similar schemes in the US, Australia and other countries. And those are kind of have more practical, tangible, tangible effect in kind of, you know, helping activists who, who are trying to leave Hong Kong or, you know, just giving people an opportunity to, to have a pathway to leave. And so, um, one other thing that I wanted to raise as well is that China's response to sanctions is to kind of point out the hypocrisy of, of the West. So, you know, when, when the West kind of uses sanctions and other measure, measures like statements of condemnation to criticize um, human rights in Hong Kong or in you know Xinjiang and other places, I mean, the Chinese government is very quick to point out that while Western nations in particular, you know, have also clamped down on protests for Black Lives Matter, for example, in, in the US and in the UK, right? The, the UK has, you know, made moves recently to to try to push, uh, you know, a, a, bill, a bill kind of um, related to protests on the ground. And, and also Australia helped draft um, Duterte's Anti-Terrorism Act in the Philippines, which gives covers to extrajudicial killings of activists. And so, you know, in order to have sanctions on these moral grounds of like, you know, human rights style Magnitsky style sanctions, the West really needs to address its own like anti-racist, anti-Muslim and anti-protest practices in order to actually have the moral legitimacy and have and generate actual like political, um, I guess, clout in having these types of discussions. It actually reminds me of some of our conversation on last week's episode of World Review, when we were talking about police overreach and uh, a road to a to a, a happier form of policing or a better form of policing, and obviously that's a subject that seems like an internal one, a domestic one. But I suppose this is a reminder that that when the police in the West is seen to abuse its power or overreach, that's also a an international diplomatic um, topic. It it it, it legitimises genuinely autocratic governments mm-hmm. to. Um, act as if this was the same thing as what they do. I mean, and this has been in the news this week, right? Because uh, I didn't choose this as my moment of the week, but I could have um, 10 miles from the trial where um, the police officer who killed George Floyd is taking place on Sunday. um, The police killed another black man, this time named Dante Wright, um, you know, for it was after a traffic stop. So uh, yes, 
you can you know, revisit um, last week's podcast. You can, uh, we will continue to follow these stories. And, uh, you know, I think we've said this on this podcast before, but dom- our domestic policy and our democracy at home, like that is our foreign policy abroad. Um, and we will we will speak more in just a bit about, in particular, about um, anti anti Asian racism in the U.S. and U.K. But first, before we do, I want to turn quickly to Taiwan. Um, Jesse, you wrote in May of last year that the Taiwanese, um, particularly with everything happening around Hong Kong, that the Taiwanese were becoming more conscious of their own identity. Um, you know, almost a year later, have we seen that trend continue? I think Taiwanese identity has been a trend, like political consciousness of a Taiwanese identity separate from China, that is, has been a trend uh, in recent years. It's It's been very widely reported. I think in that story, um, I had a statistic from the National Changchi University's Election Study Center, which showed that from 1992 to 2019, those identifying as Taiwanese more than double to 58% of the population. Um, so, you know, although Taiwan's political sphere is very, still very divided and many, you know, support maintaining a status quo with China, there's definitely a sense of, you know, rising threat and aggression when it comes to uh, looking at Beijing's um, uh, policy and stance towards Taiwan. And, you know, the the political consciousness and Taiwanese identity, particularly a um, surrounding young people is something that has been really growing in recent years. You can see this very clearly, even in last year when, um, it, I mean, there's been lots of experts talking about this, but um, looking at Beijing's actions in Hong Kong and seeing Hong Kong in many ways is supposed to be a model for for Chinese reunification with Taiwan. And so when Taiwanese people see, you know, the crackdowns in Hong Kong, um, that was one of the major reasons why young voters in particular turned out and, you know, resulted in this landslide victory for President Tsai Ing-wen last January. And in many ways, it was a very contested election. And it was, a you know, this, her reverse, her reversal of her political fortunes very much was tied into this um, crackdowns in Hong Kong and, and people in Taiwan really feeling like they resonate with the movement in Hong Kong's. So last year, I interviewed a lot of Taiwanese activists, both in Taiwan and also overseas in the UK and the US, where they were participating in Hong Kong protests in solidarity with Hong Kong protests. And you can see that this um, solidarity aspect has grown very much um, since then. Um, I'm not sure if this has been covered by the New Statesman, but um, the Milk Tea Alliance is is, is a digital coalition that has been um, joining uh, pro-democracy activists in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, in Thailand, and Myanmar, um, kind of espousing shared values of, of democracy using this imagery of a milk tea, uh, which is really, really interesting to see how this is kind of a digital coalition that... Um, has spilled out onto onto the streets and influenced actual protests. Can you explain why why, why milk tea is the the symbol of choice? Oh sure. <laughs> well, it's like a beloved drink in all of these different places. So you have Taiwanese milk <laughs> because tea because it's delicious, Jeremy. <laughs> it's delicious, and it's it's every country kind of has their own like spin on milk tea. Like Hong Kong has a, a particular Hong Kong style milk tea. Same with in Myanmar and Thailand and and in Taiwan. So it's it's. Very interesting how their you know protesters are using these kind of visual imageries and um, kind of cultural identity markers to advocate for you know political identity. It actually reminds me a bit of the umbrella movement in Hong Kong, where you have a sort of mundane everyday object that gets picked up as a symbol uh, for a sort of bottom up uh, protest movement, right? 
Yeah, and I think like when you go back to the umbrella movement in Hong Kong, uh, it's very much linked to Taiwan sunflower movement that happened, you know, a couple of months earlier. Which, um, for those who aren't familiar, it's hundreds of student protesters occupied nation- uh, the national legislature for about three weeks to oppose a proposed free trade agreement with China. And at the time, Hong Kong uh, activists and, and and Hong Kong protesters were very much influenced by. Um, protesters from the sunflower movement, how they kind of use like civil disobedience and like peaceful protests to advocate for political reform. And so I think, I mean, there's a, a long legacy of, of these types of transnational um, inspiration and solidarities between Hong Kong and Taiwan. And now with this Milk Tea mm-hmm. Alliance, you see this expanding to include Taiwan, Myanmar, and really other um, countries in Asia who are having movements against authoritarian regimes. So you, you definitely see a clear link between this and political consciousness and Taiwanese identity. I mean, a parallel point, and, and it's something I'd be keen to also have Emily comment on from, from Washington, is the way that uh, Taiwan's sort of international profile has um, risen viewed from the outside as well as viewed by the Taiwan, Taiwanese. I mean, particularly in the context of Hong Kong, but also in the context of um, the the threats directed at Taiwan itself from Beijing and, and, and its allies. And it was interesting last year, you mentioned Tsai's uh, re-election in uh, early 2020, but the way that um, she became kind of, you know, really grew in global stature over the course of the year as this symbol of democracy in the face of um, authoritarian um, bullying. Um, and, and Taiwan became, I think, an international talking point. And you saw the likes of um, Australia and Japan speak out in favour of uh, Taiwan's return to the World Health Organization. Um, it, it just really grew in salience. And I mean, particularly at the moment um, where uh, there, there are seems to be a lot of questions about, about how the relationship across the, the strait is going to develop. I mean, the FT recently had a story saying that there were concerns in the Biden administration that China might try to forcibly reunify with uh, Taiwan. Um, in the context of that sort of looming threat, I mean, h- how do you see Taiwan's um, identity as perceived in the wider world? I think I think Taiwan, you know, and also Taiwanese people are adapting to the shifting geopolitical structure that's happening right now. Um, that's very much colored by the US-China rivalry. And it, it's I think Taiwan's very much positioning itself, like you said, as kind of like democracy within, you know, greater China and like regionally in Asia. And Taiwan's particular successes when it comes to controlling the pandemic in particular and the way it's been able to kind of leverage this um, narrative of, of, of Taiwan vis-a-vis, you know, China has been very, um, very influential um, in kind of positioning Taiwan's stature in in the global stage. And this is quite significant because it's the first time that Taiwan has really successfully been able to do that to this degree. I mean, traditionally, Beijing has used diplomatic, military and economic pressure to isolate Taiwan on the world stage. And now Taiwan is kind of like a, you know, a, a, a kind of I guess, uh, uh, an area in which um, Western nations are using to kind of, um, I guess, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, but basically what I'm trying to say is that it's it's quite interesting to see Taiwan being in this renewed position. And also I think it's, uh, like, like you mentioned, I have been following, I, I guess, these reports as well of analysts and military officials from the U.S. warning of a rising um, China threat when it comes to Taiwan and kind of saying that there is a uh, likelihood of invasion is, is much higher. 
But on the other hand, there's also been a lot of other experts who who say that this these types of comments are more a reflection of the deteriorating U.S.-China relations rather than you know actually perceived like heightened you know threat practically speaking. And I've also interviewed um, Taiwanese activists and also scholars on the ground, and people are very much complacent about this, and they're not really worried about an invasion. It's not something that is really talked about in kind of Taiwanese society. Interesting. Well, so the other the other question that I wanted to ask you on this is that at the top of this conversation, um, you spoke about Hong Kong being, you know, a political political football or a political tool in some ways for for Western mm. powers. Do you think that uh, that you know, I don't know that there's a risk or that already Taiwan has become the same? I think Taiwan has always been, you know, this kind of football between the U.S. and China rivalry, yeah. just because it's it's kind of the stage for U.S. military presence in many ways in that mm-hmm. region. Um, but whether that translates into, uh, you know, a threat of invasion or like more aggression is, is difficult to say because although there have been more kind of aggressive, like um, more military movements um, on that front, um, I mean, Taiwan has also a very, like, codependent economic relationship with China. And there was a really interesting article recently in Foreign Policy by Bonnie Glazer of the Center for Strategic and um, International Studies. And she kind of talks about this, how Taiwan has been trying to um, use its new southbound policy, which is trying to, to you know, increase trade with Indo-Pacific nations to kind of, uh, you know, diversify and kind of not be as reliant on China in terms of the economy. But very much um, when you look at last year, China's share of Taiwanese exports in general reached an an all-time record high of 44%. So you you can see clearly that there is still like a dependency there. And um, so it's, it's, it'll be interesting seeing how that changes um, with the, the changing situation with the Biden administration and Beijing administration. So, you know, we've been speaking about geopolitics, and I, I want to shift gears, I would like to shift gears slightly to speak about the ramifications for um, uh, Asians and people of Asian descent in the US and the UK um, of these geopolitics. So we've spoken about this briefly on the podcast before, um, but hate crimes against Asian Americans and, and Asians in America increased by almost 150% from 2019 to 2020. Um, Obviously, this coincides with the coronavirus and with then-President Trump using openly racist language to describe this virus. Um, Research from the University of California at Berkeley found that from 2007 to 2020, the belief that Americans of European descent were more, quote-unquote, American than Asian Americans declined. Um, but that trend reversed itself when the coronavirus came in and, and not just the virus, but the rhetoric around the, vi- the, the virus. And I think, I mean, a concern that I have is that even though Biden doesn't um, like openly, it's not even a dog whistle, is it isn't openly racist in the same way that because we're still in this U.S. versus China or U.S. and U.K. versus China or the West versus China um binary or conversation or, or whatever, um, that that will spill out into uh, into everyday life, right? And that and basically that Asians and people of Asian descent will continue to be attacked because of geopolitical posturing. So I guess my question for you is what, uh, and not to, not to be like, Jesse, solve it for us. But what, I mean, what do you think that politicians and pundits should be doing 
such that foreign policy does not like foreign policy should not result in elderly Asian people getting beaten up on the streets. Right. So so what I guess, what are the best practices for for um, talking about this in a way that doesn't increase hate crimes and violence against uh, Asian people and people of Asian descent? That's a very, very um, important question. I think one thing that we really need to, um, I guess, make clear is there's this, I've been reading a lot of narratives or takes about um, how, you know, criticizing the Chinese uh, Communist Party equates to criticizing uh, Chinese people, right? And especially after um, the Atlanta shootings um, occurred, um, the Global Times, which is a state-run media outlet in China, you know, published a, a piece that criticized Western media in particular and journalists um, for inviting attacks to Asian groups. And what this kind of speaks to is this very uh, dangerous uh, false equivalency of the Chinese people with the mm-hmm. Chinese state, right? Which is that, you know, right. we can, of course, like couch criticisms against a government or, uh, you know, state officials representing the government without equating them to to Chinese people. And, and I think that's that's something that um, it, it, it's the most important moving forward, the way that politicians talk about this issue and the way that, you know, people think about anti-Asian racism and, and the spike in hate crimes. And um, last year, I reported um, a lot on this uh, rising violence against East and Southeast Asians um, globally and also within the UK for Channel 4 News. So I, you know, I, I traveled around the UK and I interviewed different people who were um, attacks of racism. And then I also um, spoke about how this was connected to um, the coronavirus and connected to geopolitical tensions um, between China and other countries. And I think, you know, with this escalation, it's really crucial for us to be able to make this differentiation between Chinese people and, and the Chinese state, because racism is is a part of escalating this geopolitical tension. I mean, mm-hmm. when you have racist uh, nationalist sentiment um, in the West and also in China, that very much fuels um, this tension and, and this rivalry. And it's been widely reported, for instance, that nationalism is increasing in China, particularly a, a, around young young people in China. And there's less, um, there's been lots of reports on how Chinese people are, you know, less likely to want to engage in dialogue, less likely wanting to, you know, go and travel to the West. And, you know, who can blame them when the, when all you see is these, you know, reports of Asian people and Chinese people being attacked in, in Western countries. And I think that really is, is super, uh, it's such a loss for people who are trying to create productive channels between people who are in China and people outside of China and having cross-cultural discussions. And for example, I just want to bring up when um, one -hmm. example is that when the app Clubhouse um, was introduced and before it was banned in China, um, there were lots of discussions um, on that app between people in China and people outside of China talking about Xinjiang, talking about Hong Kong, talking about Taiwan, having these very productive dialogues. And so that clearly shows that there is an appetite for, you know, Mm -hmm. understanding between both sides and, you know, racism and also this posturing um, by politicians really much, uh, you know, is a detriment to that. And it's really interesting and I think important that you point out, you know, Trump and other politicians' language when they talk about criticizing um, the Chinese state and equating that with the Chinese people, because you see this in the UK as well. I mean, um, Labour MP Sarah Owen, you know, spoke about how she overheard MPs referring to Chinese people as "quote unquote" evil bastards during a discussion of China's human rights record. So when you have like politicians, you know, in the UK basically doing this, right? Like, 
Right. There's a real need to be able to 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 change the way that we talk about this issue. Do you think there's any new opportunities for dialogue between between the peoples, as it were? I mean, you mentioned Clubhouse, but um, you know, we did we did a big feature at the New Statesman um, uh, last autumn, looking at um, decoupling between the US and China, and we sort of we took that beyond the economic sphere and also looked at how relations between the two societies were. And there is evidence that, for example, you're seeing fewer student exchanges or, you know, people going from one country to another to study. Um, the consumption of each other's culture is, I think, by some measures declining. I mean, are there any glimpses of hope there for um, a sort of a direct exchange between the peoples of China and the US or, 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 or China and other parts of the West um, that might help alleviate the sort of um, those um, nationalist or racial tensions? Yeah, I think as long as there are Chinese people overseas and and Western people within China, these dialogues are taking place. And there's still so many, you know, Chinese students. You know, although you pointed out rightly that the the number seems to be declining, right? And especially in the U.S. because of the increasingly hostile environment. Uh, but you know, there's still mm-hmm. a huge population here, and it's up to uh, you know governments to be able to navigate this properly. And 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 also the media, I think, you know, with I think there's a lot of a lot of what we see equating Chinese people with the Chinese state or like conflating racism. It's really much perpetuated by the way um, international media, you know, covers this issue. And I think mm. like even when, for example, when the pandemic first started, I think there was a petition in the UK um, of activists saying that international media kept using pictures of people of East and Southeast Asian descent on stories on coronavirus, which kind of subconsciously yeah. like puts, you know, incepts this idea in your mind of like equating yeah. the people with a virus. Um, and so I think things like that and, and being able to see more stories in foreign media that talk about things from a human perspective and remember that these are people and focusing our discussions mm-hmm. on like individual people and like the a- addressing the commonalities between people um, and then the shared values of what what we care about you know in China in you know in other countries just human values I think we really need to bring back that focus in order to push back against this trend. An interesting running theme of this conversation it strikes me has been the the very very permeable um, divide between domestic policy and foreign policy. I mean, whether we're talking about policing and how excesses in one country are abused by governments in another, whether we're talking about the way that uh, geopolitical competition produces interpersonal and intercommunity hatreds, whether you're talking about the way that one country's protest movement can change how another country feels about its own. It's, it's. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to say so, but it is, it is really very hard to to, to, to draw the line between one and the other, isn't it? Yeah, it's extremely difficult. And I think one of the difficulties of this line, these fault lines that you can see played out very clearly is the way that, um, you know, the US and China are wary of, of technology and like the ways that they, uh, people communicate um, from in and out of China. Mm. And with this, I'm thinking of WeChat. So I did a story last year about, you know, Trump wanting to ban WeChat. And, you know, of course, like there, there are all these security risks with WeChat and how it's a platform for, you know, disinformation and like fake news and, you know, worrying about um, uh, national security threat, etc. But a lot of activists and, and civilians, um, Chinese citizens in particular, rely on this app to connect with people back in China. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, also reporters like myself, we rely very much on WeChat to be able to do our reporting in China as well. And there's lots of like activism that occurs in WeChat. And so it's it's interesting because these are there are no clear 
answers for this. And I think if you are to address, of course, you should, you know, the threat that such technologies pose, you know, we really need to think very carefully and scrutinize like how we go about doing this and like, think about like the human aspect of this as well. Like what is this communication tool really? um, Mm. And what does it mean for the people that are involved? Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, with that we will head to our next segment, which we like to call... You Ask Us. Very good, Jeremy. Very well delivered. Our question this week is, our listener question, is how will or won't the United States rejoining multilateral institutions or organizations change U.S.-China relations? So I guess some context in the Trump era, you know, the United States left... For example, the World Health Organization pulled out of the Paris Agreement, pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. Um, So all of these places of potential dialogue with China were vacated. Now that the U.S. is back in, will that lead to improved relations or is it, you know, just another just another arena for a tit for tat? Like you said, I mean, I think multilateralism has has been part of American foreign policy for for many decades, and Trump kind of drastically appended that approach towards one that's more isolationist. Um, and you see, like China itself has also been trying to. I mean, it has always been competing with U.S. and other countries in terms of accessing like markets and resources, and you know, with through especially the formation of different institutions. Like you have China's Belt and Road Initiative, right? Trade Initiative. And also in 2015, um, when when China created the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, so definitely, I think that um, there is a huge um, US-China rivalry playing out within um, these institutions. And 
of course, like there's a risk, um, has always been a risk of these organizations becoming just pawns for either power. Um, and so I think what, what will be the impact of this will really depend on whether these institutions are able to address this changing geopolitical order. If we're able to like have uh, discussions and change the mechanisms to reflect um, this this changing reality. I mean, especially now we have so many global threats, right? From the coronavirus is 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 one big one, and and climate change another. And I think like you know, in order to have global solutions to these global problems, we really need multilateralism. And I think the challenge will be making sure that these uh, shared goals between countries will outweigh the geopolitical divides, and that they won't just turn into uh, you know pawns for like China versus US and this vying for a geopolitical power. What do you think, Emily, from Washington? Because, I mean, um, there was a lot of talk when Biden was elected about alliances of democracies and alliances for multilateralism being a big part of his foreign policy. And there was talk about him hosting a big summit of democracies. Um, the UK was trying to court, I think, American establishment opinion by um, trying to turn the G7 into a so-called D10 of the uh, group of 10 democracies with the fairly explicit aim of, of, of pulling together a new group to um, stand up to China. Um, I mean, where does that look now sort of coming on for 100 days into the Biden administration? Yeah, I think that has not been where Biden's priorities have been, um, understandably, right? It's, I think if you look at um, where he's put most of his first 100 day energy, it's been on domestic affairs, not on assembling like the Justice League of Democracies. And the other thing is, I mean, just speaking realistically, some of the largest, uh, quote unquote, democracies in the world, are, you know, are, are their, their democratic houses are not necessarily in order right now. And I include the United States in that. So I don't know, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about the Indo-Pacific and, you know, various, various um, partnerships the US might enter to counter China. Um, and I just think that we should be honest about the fact that these are ultimately security relationships, right? We can we can kind of dress them up in the language of democracy, but ultimately what that does is weaken our own, is, is make us hypocritical, um, unless we also simultaneously work to improve our democratic institutions at home. What I will say on the positive side is that while I think, while I completely agree with Jesse that these, inst- like these um, multilateral organizations and institutions and agreements ultimately will be places for US and Chinese posturing and competing and like, who's the, you know, who's the major player at the World Health Organization. Um, Having more avenues for dialogue and discussion and debate is ultimately a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like when, when countries stop talking to each other, that's, to my mind, that's when things are really dangerous and very, and and scary. Um, It's the same reason that I'm glad that the United States and Russia extended New START. It's better to have that avenue of communication than to not have it, right? It's better that, that, these rivals have something that they're ostensibly working on together, then not, in my opinion. I, I wonder if you could also, almost talk about a virtuous cycle in some of these places where, I mean, last year, it seemed that China's sort of um, conspicuous uh, gestures to commit to the multilateral system, whether it was standing by the World Health Organization, standing by UN institutions, or making this big announcement, as Xi Jinping did, about uh, decarbonizing. That that felt like a sort of a rebuke to the U.S. It was it was a message to the world: the U.S. has pulled back from its responsibilities, but China's stepping up, pure, pure sort of uh, d- diplomacy and um, power play. But if you end up in a situation where both superpowers, if we can call them that, are competing on those fronts to be the better player in the multilateral system, 
you might get some positive results. I mean, looking ahead, for example, to the COP26 summit in uh, November, um, I would welcome a, a, a sort of an atmosphere when the US or China were trying to outdo each other to be the most ambitious. I mean, that would be a good place to be. So I'm, I, I, I take all the points that have been said so far, but I, I wonder if we might be some positives in this. Oh, absolutely. Look, look, I, I hope that these two both compete to be like the most diplomatically engaged and most environmentally conscious and most, you know, like we should be so lucky that that's what happens. So with that, um, let's look ahead to the next seven days in world affairs. Jesse, as you're our guest, why don't you start us off? What will you be looking ahead to in the next week in international politics? Sure. Um, so one thing I'm looking at next week, but also just in, in general in the coming weeks is what's happening in Myanmar. Um <laughs> I mean, I mean, since the coup occurred in February, I mean, the death toll in Myanmar has passed over 700 and um, the situation is rapidly deteriorating. I did a couple stories on this and I'm in touch with activists, you know, now, you know, trying to flee, you know, the country as well. And this, um, I think it was today, um, the opponents of the military announced a national unity government, which involves uh, ousted parliamentarians, leaders of the anti-coup protests, and also ethnic minority leaders. Um, and so I'm, I'm really interested to see, like, after this happens, like, what, what you know, what changes will be coming next week and also in recent, uh, in, in the coming weeks, because I think it, the situation is quite untenable and, and there needs to be more, um, more coverage and kind of more imp- uh, attention on this topic. Absolutely. How about you, Emily? Well, this relates to what we were just speaking about. Um, Next week on April 22nd and April 23rd, Biden is trying to convene a climate summit. Uh, He has invited some of the, you know, the heavy hitters like Russia and China, as well as some countries that um, are expected to be or are are already being heavily hit by climate change and the climate crisis like Bangladesh. Um, You know, I think I'm very curious as to how this will go, uh, how ambitious Biden will be, how receptive the rest of the world will be to this country that just that, that very recently was the only country that wasn't signed on to the Paris Agreement now being like, we will once again lead the way on fighting the climate crisis. Um, I think it's certainly one to watch. And what about you, Jeremy? So a, a story that I think is significant in the next week is that um, Ghana is expected to run out of doses of COVID-19 vaccinations. And that's obviously significant in and of itself for Ghana, but it's also symbolic of the problems with rolling out vaccinations in Africa. There have been apparently um, under 14 million doses given out in the whole continent, so a continent of 1.3 billion people. Um, and part of the problem has been um, uh, delays in exports from India, which is battling its own um, very severe latest outbreak of, of, of the virus. Um, and I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of the vaccines being provided through the, we, we were just talking about multilateralism, and obviously there's a multilateral answer to the pandemic, which is COVAX, this this um, global effort to provide uh, vaccines to poorer countries. Um, but some of the vaccine, some of the COVAX vaccines uh, that were due to go to Africa have been caught up because of the problems in India, and it just adds to the sense that the much of the global South is being left behind in the race to vaccinate. So I think it, the, the Ghana running out will be significant in and of itself, but also because it points to this broader sense that um, Africa is getting the vaccine slowly and haltingly and um, will take many years to get through its whole population at this rate. We should also just quickly note that um, this is a discussion and debate here in the U.S. too. Um, just today, Bernie Sanders, among other senators, um, sort of sent a, 
a press release and said that they want to pressure the Biden administration or they want to urge the Biden administration to support a patent waiver mm. for the vaccines, which would increase global uh, which would increase global supply. It's also a cause being championed by Gordon Brown, the former UK prime minister as well. So a lot of um, uh, pressure behind that. But we'll have to see what, what comes of it. So all that remains is to say a big thank you to Jesse Lau for joining us for this discussion. I think we've covered a lot of very interesting ground, a lot of food for thought there. Uh, thanks very much, Jesse. Thank you so much for such a provocative discussion. Indeed. And uh, a reminder to listeners that you can read Jesse's um, latest piece on Hong Kong and the question of sanctions on the webpage for this podcast, which you can find along with all recent uh, World Review episode pages at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your cousins, your exes, you don't have to tell them. Um, And if you want to subscribe to the free newsletter, um, it's also called World Review. You can sign up at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Thank you for listening and until next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.